We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host, Mike Slatman. I'm uh, honored to be a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators. I've been a, an expert fire investigator for now in my 46th year, of, uh, still out there investigating fires. I'm the president of uh, Fire Consulting International and the manager of Consolidated Fire Investigation Services. And this is Donna Ingram. I'm a past director of the International Association of Arson Investigators and have, I guess I'm on my 31st year uh, in fire and fraud. And welcome to Speaking of Fire. Thank you for being here, Donna, too, because uh, Donna's not in in the studio today. She's uh, calling in, if you can tell the difference in her voice. Uh, She's calling in. Uh, She's out of town. And we are honored to have... um, uh, a really good guest today, and it was—it's a surprise. I told you last week we're going to have a surprise uh, show, and I didn't know if I could arrange for it, but I did. I got uh, Paul Steensland with us today, when we're going to talk about wildfire investigations, and and it's a very interesting uh, topic. But before we get into that, I would be totally and completely remiss with without um, mentioning Las Vegas, the the terrible killings that were. And 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 the injuries that were perpetrated by that that insane person up from the uh, from the Mandalay Bay, um, all those people the death toll is going to rise. I mean, um, we're at 59 now, and and uh, it'll go up. There's more people in critical condition. Um, I want to say something, and it's going to sound terribly political, and I don't care because that's what I believe, and I there's no reason. For people to have these pump stocks, uh, there's no reason bump stocks. There's no reason for that. Nor is there any reason for anybody to have silencers for weapons. Think about this: if if they had a silencer on all those weapons, and he had the money, he had the money to do that. He certainly had money when he they've gotten over 47 um, different um, weapons that he's had, and all those semi-automatic weapons, AR-15s. Uh, that are out there. You don't need an AR-15 to shoot a deer. You don't need an AR-15 to kill a rabbit. All they do is kill people. And as far as the, the idea that they should be used for target shooting, are the government's going to come and get me so I need this, this, this weapon? It's insane. Um, I want to tell you guys, <clears throat> I feel really bad about the loss of life out there. And uh, and so you can disagree with me. You can be a member of the NRA all you want to, but I want to tell you that uh, that uh, people kill people with these weapons. And you'll get a fruit cape, uh, fruit loop, and and they can kill a lot of people. I thought Sandy Hook, the when the little children would got killed, would have made these politicians that we elect do something about this. So. Apparently, they're totally incompetent and totally impotent when it comes to um, the NRA. So, the NRA money, uh, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, are is is the is the thing that's pushing this. Um, 
All right. So off my soapbox now, let me tell you about a great guy that we have here. Um, uh, and is Paul Steensland. He's a retired senior special agent for the National Wild, Wildlife Investigation, uh, U.S. Forestry Service, I'm sorry. And, uh, and he's a National Wildlife Investigation Specialist. He was, is very instrumental in, in fire investigations of uh, wildland fires throughout the United States and other countries. Uh, he was on the Wildland Fire Working uh, Subcommittee for, for uh, uh, 921, NFPA 921. He was on their subcommittee he, um, on 1033, the professional qualifications for fire investigators. And he owns his own company. Um, he's the president uh, and, um, of a private wildland investigation company. Um, and uh, he does forensic uh, consulting and, and training. And he's instructed investigators in, in over 40 states of the Union, as well as Australia, Canada, Bulgaria, Greece, Guam, and the Netherlands. So, you international people out there, and we've got a lot of international uh, listeners, and we have 249 that I know of in China. Okay, we've had over 21,000 listeners. You want, uh, you want to bring somebody to your country to talk about um, wildland fires, you bring Paul Steensland. And uh, so, Paul, um, you've got only, only 47 years of combined law and, law and fire, and, uh, fire and law enforcement uh, with the U.S. Forestry Service and in private practice. Um, what do you see, Paul, happening in, uh, in today? In, fire, in wildland fires. Wow. Well, we're, I think uh, we're seeing effects, whether you know it's human-caused or otherwise, there is definitely a, some kind of climate change going on. We're not here to debate that as far as the, the uh, circumstances as to the cause, but there's clearly a, 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 an uptick in, in larger fires, uh, fires, more fires, and I, I was actually quite startled when my good friend from Australia, a guy named Richard Woods, who I teach frequently with uh, internationally and, and here in the States, when he called me and he said, hey, the Dutch want a training session because they're experiencing an unusual amount of wildfires. And I said, what, and, you know, crown fires and tulip patches? Come on. And uh, after we you know, started looking into it, they, they have a, a, an increasingly serious problem with the currents and, and uh size in northern Europe. You know, southern Europe has always had a problem, but now uh, I think one of the second class that we put on in the Netherlands, we actually had people from Denmark and Finland in that course. So when you've got issues up in Scandinavia that are related to fire, uh, wildfire, then I think you can say there's definitely an increasing uh, concern in, in, in Europe as well as you know, the rest of the world. Yes, you know, and, and I, I was very um, surprised to, to know that there's over... 60,000 wildland fires that occur throughout the United States alone. Uh, most of them we're not hearing about because they're put out by local fire departments and things of that nature. But uh, I know that we've worked a bunch of them here in, in, uh, in the middle of the country, uh, even uh, in, you know, in Kansas and, and Colorado and, and uh, even without mountains, uh, there's still wildland fires. And, uh, and you, uh, you're an expert in this, and and uh, and people sometimes don't understand that uh, that they can be worked um, similarly uh, by fire investigators. Uh, but you use a bunch of different tools. Like one of the things I love to about fire wildland fires is uh, 
is uh, you can still it, it's still um, it's still part of the scientific method. You can still find out where it starts and and things of that nature. And, and one of the things that when they get really thousands of acres, you even use uh, aircraft, don't you, Paul? Uh, some kind of either a, a helicopter or a, sing, a fixed wing or something like that. As far as an, from an investigative standpoint, uh, the yeah. helicopter is used usually to portray uh, the scene from an aerial viewpoint once you've determined the, the origin and hopefully the cause. So right. uh, aerial photographs taken by first responders, such as hell attack crews that are first usually first on scene on these fires, or air attack uh, lead planes that are you know, uh, guiding the uh, retardant ships in, those photographs that uh, they take in the very, very early stages of the fire can be very helpful, for sure. Yeah, and I and you know, and so it's it's fascinating. Um, I know that there's a lot of uh, people, the general public, listening to us, and uh, and there's one, and there's different things that affect. Uh, uh, the fire development. Well, you use fire dynamics just like we uh, everybody does, and that's how. The, well, NIST has a very small uh, definition of fire dynamics. It's how the fires start, spread, and develop. <clears throat> and uh, and you, that's 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 what you do too, isn't it? Right. I, we 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 use the scientific method as the underpinnings for the systematic methodology that we apply to a wildfire. And, and what we try to do is obviously talk to witnesses that may have seen the fire in its early stages. Typically, those are first responders. And because of their their training and their experience in wildfire suppression, they're usually able to give us pretty accurate information as to you know the where the fire was when they first arrived. So I know the public a lot of times has, uh, and, and other people have a hard time getting their head around the fact that you can take a 10, 20, 30,000 uh, acre or hectare fire and narrow it down to that, you know, one precise point where the ignition sources find that single match or that, you know, metal metal flake that came off of, for instance, a, a railroad brake shoe. Uh, it, it, how do they do that? Well, we start pretty small. We can usually eliminate, on uh, say, a 10,000-acre fire, we can use, usually eliminate 9,999.5 just based on what we know from first responders and also looking at this from a fire behavior context taking into consideration, you know, wind, fuel, and slope. And so we start with a small area. Once you're in that relatively small area, then it's a matter of reading the artifacts that the fire leaves, that the fire effects that the fire leaves on combustible and non-combustible objects as it moves across the landscape. We call those fire pattern indicators. And the individual indicators will make up the overall fire uh, progression uh, pattern. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> go, ahead. go ahead, go ahead, Donna. Go ahead. Oh, I was I was going to say, Paul, we have a lot of fire service that listens to this, mm-hmm. and some of them may not be around any any area that has uh, wildland fires. And one of the things, kind of a um, for them to understand, if you could just go back basic, the difference between say structure and a wildland fire and the way the, the fire behaves, what is the main difference there? Sure, of course. Um, 
Okay, a, a, a structure fire or vehicle fire, boat fire for that matter, those are all compartment fires. They're burning into confined space with limited amounts of oxygen. They also are usually, unless there's you know lots of windows open, they're usually not influenced by uh, external environmental factors such as temperature and, and particularly wind. And so the big difference with a unconfined environment, a wildfire, is that it is influenced by all these external environmental factors. And also, heat is not confined because it's not compartmentalized, so it spreads out. So in a structure fire, the general principle, and we're talking generally, of course, is to work from the area of least damage to the area of most damage because that's where the fire has been burning longest. In a wildfire, uh, wildfires start... In, in the incipient stages, usually very small, n- not uncommonly a smoldering ignition, and they only begin to develop uh, a heat release rate, higher heat release rates, higher heat release rates and intensity as it moves out and it becomes influenced by uh, you know wind, slope, and fuels in that combination. So what we do as wildfire investigators, again, generally look for the area of lesser damage. Right, and and it's not totally and completely different so that for the firefighters that are listening because there, as the fire spreads, it, it, it leaves indicators on, on like, um, well, like on trees where you can see which direction it's, uh, it's coming from and which way it's going. And, and that's not unlike uh, the, the burn pattern charring on, uh, on wood studs. Uh, in in a in a particular house, I just want to throw that out there as an ex- illustration where it's not totally foreign, but I mean it's so different. I mean moisture even has something to do with wildland fires. So, go ahead. I'm sorry, Paul. You can continue then. No, no, no. That's no. That's a good comment. Uh, one of the things that we see is um, and is kind of kind of starkly highlights the difference is unless you have specialized training in wildfire behavior in wildfire investigation it's we commonly see people with a you know a very good a very professional structure fire background come in without that training and try and investigate a wildfire and they misinterpret burn patterns i can think of a case not too long ago i won't name it because it's still under litigation but the defendant's expert was a pure wildfire i mean pure structure fire guy with no wildfire background and he was completely reading indicators opposite because he was applying the principle of radiant heat exposure to what was actually an angle of char pattern where mm-hmm. the fire comes in low into the vegetation and then blows out the back side of it, for instance, a tree or a standard brush and does the most damage on the downwind side. And he was looking at that and saying, well, that's where the fire came into that because that's the most damage. So without the training, it's very, it's, it, it, yes, principles are there but without the training you don't know how to apply that training to this specialized field and yes, i would and that, absolutely do that <laughs> i would yeah. absolutely misread that and and that is why i was wondering and of course you've got different uh fuel loads you've got different heat packages of you know when if it starts in brush and it's it moves into a into a structure correct correct yeah and and then and then that it also burns Oh, it burns vehicles. Um, it, it uh, you know, all kinds of uh, corrals. Uh, you know, uh, fields of uh, of um, of um, different kinds of uh, of, of foliage, uh, whatever. And um, yeah, now um, you know, 
I was interested in knowing because we work them out here in Kansas, of course, too, and and um, I was um, I was when I first got into it a long time ago, many years ago. Um, it's really interesting to know that you can even tell a direction um, from the from the grass, the way it burned, it, the, the the types of different fuels that are involved. Uh, why don't you talk about just a couple of things that you would look at, uh, Paul, in, in in a particular kind of fire? And I'm I'm going along the idea. See, I'm familiar with uh, Fi 210. You might want to tell them what that is. And uh, and um, and some of the things that uh, you guys use to um, to like well fuel weather topography things like that. Okay, would you talk about that for a minute? Sure, sure. What we uh, what we really encourage people to do is to take some basic fire behavior training, wildland fire behavior training, such as, such as the courses that we recommend strongly are the S series. That S is a uh, designator for a suppression-based course that the NWCG National Wildfire Coordinating Group uh, puts out the tra- various training uh, packages across the country. And the S courses are suppression. The ones that we're most interested in from a fire investigation standpoint are S-190, which is basic fire behavior. Any first-year firefighter gets that level of training. S-290, which is uh, a little bit more advanced, and then ultimately S-390, which is Introduction to Fire Behavior Calculations. And at, I don't personally don't believe a fire investigator can be truly competent unless they've had all three levels of the fire behavior training. Then the other courses that go specifically into fire investigation are, uh, and this this was a committee that I chaired for a while. I'm currently on it as a subject matter uh, expert, but it's the, in the, the National Wildfire Coordinating Group's uh, wildland fire investigation. started out as a working team and due to governmental reorganization, it is now a subcommittee. But nonetheless, that group put out th- uh, three levels, FI-110, which is fire investigation for first responders, which we encourage uh, investigators to deliver to all their first responders. It teaches them how to recognize an origin area, general origin area. It teaches them how to recognize basic uh, potential evidence items and protect and how to protect them, how to protect the origin area, how to identify potential witnesses and get basic witness information. So it's a really good class. It's one day. It can be done over a course of a day and a half if you want to get a little bit more elaborate. But it's a great course, and it's everybody that's put it on within their jurisdictions always comes back and says, boy, this really pays off because we're getting pristine scenes instead of, you know, our origin area, we find, uh, you know, three fire trucks parked and a hotshot crews just walk through it. So that FI-110 is very valuable. FI-210 is the basic origin and cause determination course, which just went through a, a revision in 2014. And it's a week-long course. This is the course that we deliver most frequently in the United States as well as in Canada and Australia and elsewhere overseas. Uh, it's, and it's not just been limited to the courses that I've taught. Uh, Richard Woods has dealt with uh, people from Korea. Some guys from uh, Canada have been over to Russia to put it on. So it's a very, very good course. It's, uh, like I said, a week long. It's got some pre-work prior to the class, and then the class is based about, oh, two-thirds classroom and one-third out in the field where over the course of the week we, we set fires for the students 
um, and then they come in cold and have to investigate those those burn, burns as a, as a individual teams. I think we run usually four to five teams per course of four people to five people each. And at the end of the week, you come out with some pretty good skills to where you can actually you know figure out buyers where they started and how they started. Hopefully, I think then, that's great. Do, do you know when the next ones be where they put it on the next time? Oh, uh, they're put on all over the place. I and I don't know. I don't know. I know we just had one up here in Oregon, where I am in in July. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, they are a spring course. Uh, anywhere from March until May, and there are various venues. It used to be uh, very heavily hosted by, and vended by the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, but they are currently in the transition to where they are not uh, doing those courses currently, as far as I know. Uh, so a lot of it is done locally, and I don't have a, a handle on who's you know who's putting one on, but there, there are usually half a dozen of them at least put on somewhere around the United States per year and a couple in Canada usually per year and the same in Australia. That's good. I just wanted I just wanted to know so that the firefighters can have a look for them in the spring. Go ahead, Donna. Yeah, we are we are we are uh, talking with uh, uh, some people in Great Britain, specifically Wales right now looking at a class for next year that's still very much in the preliminary talking stages. So um Hopefully, hopefully the Welsh won't Welsh on that class, and we will be able to go over there. And I'm sorry if I offended anybody. No, no, no don't, don't worry. <laughs> anyway, the uh, the third level of training is what we call FI three ten, and this is uh, complex case management, and it's uh, really geared towards um, fire investigators that have or work with either have law enforcement authority themselves or they work very closely with agencies that do have law enforcement authority. And it's really geared toward operating a complex team investigation, typically for a serial arson case. And it's a grueling course. Uh, People that have gone through it have all come out and said, this was one of the hardest courses I've ever taken in my life. Uh, You work it just like you're working a real fire. It's built on an arson series that that I was one of the uh, consultants and investigators on up in Washington State a number of years ago. A two-year case that involved, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, 30-some-odd fires. And uh, it was successfully uh, resolved with the conviction of the the serial arsonist. So we pulled together all the elements out of that course of the case file and obviously have somewhat abbreviated. And at the beginning of the course, you work through uh, the case just like we did as the team on the ground. And at the end, you hopefully come to the same conclusion that we did as to who was responsible for the fire. We've had any number of people. I lost track, uh, but I would say on the average of every other course, at least one student has come back and said, I've solved a long-standing serial arson problem in my area based on what I learned in this course this past week. I wanted to ask you why it's important to identify the cause of a fire and the person responsible when it comes to wildland fires. That's a good question. Um, And obviously the first and primary reason is to you know, develop statistics as to what's causing my fire so that you can you know, tailor a fire prevention program to address uh, th- those particular causes and also to identify new, new emerging causes. Like, for instance, in the 80s, 
uh, we started getting catalytic converter particle fires. That was never a, a cost prior to catalytic converters, and there was no training about catalytic converter-caused fires other than, you know, we know they're hot, and if you park over, you know, dry vegetation, they will cause fires. But nobody understood that if you, you know, have a, a, an equipment malfunction, uh, such as a, a, a failing oxygen sensor, it will change the, the uh, ratio of the fuel and oxygen in the engine. It can cause damage to the converter, which then uh, overheats and ejects hot, hot uh, uh, fragments of hot ceramic, uh, metal-coated ceramic fragments which are coming out of and Sorry. that's when, and that's when people are parking on uh, on ground cover that's uh, overgrown or, or dry or or whatever. Uh, correct. Well, no, that's that can be one, but no, the other one that I'm causing that really caused us fits until we figured it out was catalytic converters breaking down due to an engine malfunction and shooting ah, hot hot and particles. If you, look, if you look inside a catalytic converter, it's a ceramic matrix that is coated with uh, typically uh, uh, an exotic or rare metal such as a a platinum or iridium. And when those things fail, they break break into pieces. And they Ah. can actually, they almost look melted when they come out. And they'll come out, obviously, the the largest piece has to be smaller than the diameter of the exhaust pipe to get out. But it's not uncommon to find... You know, chunks of catalytic converted origins on fires, particularly on, on sides of roads. So when this problem first started showing up in the 80s, nobody really understood what it, you know what was causing all these roadside fires. And it was, you know, course of several investigators all talking and sharing information that we managed to put that together and figure you know, that out. Um- a lot of people think it's only um, cigarette butts being thrown out the window, which is stupid for people to do in in uh, dry areas and stuff like that. We've only got two minutes left, Paul, on on that, so um, we've, we're going to go to break. Um, but and I, I want to talk to you for a second when uh, when we do when we do come back from break. I want uh, because you've got such extensive experience. I'd really like to hear about one of your cases, one of your most interesting and challenging cases. And we're also going to talk about serial arsonists, about who are they, why do they do it. Uh, you've worked so many of them. You've, I imagine you had confessions, haven't you? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and how? And we won't talk about exactly how we uh, do these things to uh, so that uh, any serial arsonist that's sitting out there is listening and says, oh, well, we're not going to, oh, that's how they do that. So we're not going to do that. No, no, but no. But here, here's the message for anybody that's a serial arsonist or, or a burgeoning serial arsonist. Don't do it because we will catch you. We have an astoundingly successful track record of catching serial arsonists. Yes, in fact, even even people that are burning um, letters and, and yeah, things, yeah, and you're familiar with that. Well, okay, well, anyway, so what we'll do is we're going to come back in a minute. Uh, we're going to come back um, uh, and talk to Paul more extensively. So when you call back, come back, come back to Speaking of Fire. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. 
Our experienced certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. Fireanalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact fireanalysis.net. That's fireanalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for joining us. Paul, how common is serial wildland arson, and who are the typical fire setters, and why do they do that? All right, those are those are three questions all run into one. I'm going to break it down as best I can for you. Okay, statistically, <laughs> nationally, arson accounts for uh, between eight and twelve percent year from year to year. However, there are certain parts of the country where it can account for 60 or 70% of their statistical fire workload. Um, But when you average the entire country out, it runs to about 10%. Um, The typical wildland fire setter, we we discuss this, there's lots of uh, after-hours discussion about is there such a thing as a typical wildland fire setter. And... Again, if you understand a statistical inference profile, you take a whole bunch of people and you average them out, and then that gives you your typical offender. And so if you use that methodology, what we're looking at is typically a younger white male that comes from you know an upbringing that was not the best. They typically are single. They have a hard time adjusting from a social standpoint. They don't have a lot of friends. And they're essentially, there's something, you know, I think they're, they're typically broken people. Now, uh, that, that is the, the statistical stereotype, if you will, of the typical wildland arsonist. However, the danger of investing too heavily into that is that, that Every arsonist is unique, and they may not fit that profile. Remember, this is an average. There are people, there are outliers that form the average. And for instance, I've worked uh, five cases that involve females setting fires, and in fact, one of them, she was right operating right under the nose of some of the surveillance officers because they were, you know, looking for that twenty-something 
white male instead of a 50-something female. Hmm. So there's a danger to getting too heavily invested into that. Uh, You would not, for instance, look typically for a a white male arsonist on a a Native American reservation. Uh, They just probably would not go there to set fires. So you're probably looking for a Native American in in that context. So that's kind of the danger of getting too heavily invested in profiles, but they can help. And I'll give you an example. We worked a case that the, uh, uh, when we, we, we did some geographical profile work on it, and it came down to a pretty tight area. There were three people that lived within that area, uh, or there were three residences within that area. One was occupied by a couple, elderly couple in their 80s. The other one was a vacant summer cabin. And the third house was occupied by a 26-year-old white male. And so we kind of went, yeah, it's probably our guy. Rather than surveil the other two places, we put our surveillance efforts towards that guy, and it was successful. So uh, right. why, did, okay, why do they do it? That's the third part of that question is yes. uh, um, when we look at these cases, okay, so... The FBI's Crime Classification Manual breaks down arson into six broad categories. The two that we see most commonly in wildland fire cases is uh, societal retaliation under the revenge or retaliation category, broad category. And it's the people that are just mad at the world. Uh, They don't have a very good life. This is a way, uh, and a good friend of mine, a retired FBI agent now, Tim Huff, and another researcher, I think it was Elspeth Ritchie, came up with this concept of power and power maintenance. And, you know, they feel that they either have lost power in their life, they never had any to begin with, or they want more, and this is a way that they can feel powerful about themselves. The other uh, motivation that we see frequently, and this is somewhat shocking, I did some research before I retired. I looked at 65 successfully resolved arson cases and found out that statistically, out of those cases, about 30% were, uh, of, the, the, of the suspects were firefighters, primarily mm-hmm. volunteers, but nonetheless still fire service. And this certainly is not to take any weight, anything away from the volunteer uh, firefighters in this country because they do a great job. There's almost, or there is over a million of them, I believe, and the vast, vast majority of them are not arsonists, serial arsonists. But so that category is excitement recognition, you know, the hero fire the, or the vanity fire. Well, that's interesting that you say that because I was going to ask you um, how a a person could possibly know or do they know the type of devastation they're going to cause. Um, I don't. I, I think in some cases, yes. I think in the, the majority of cases, no. Uh, there, uh, you know, there there was a case that I was involved with with Cal Fire shortly after I retired. They brought me on board as a consultant, and. Um, that involved a volunteer fire captain who had been setting fires for close to 20 years. And in his case, he clearly was attempting to, in my opinion, to cause massive amounts of damage. He would wait until there was a north or, or an east wind event to, to set fires. A number of his fires got over 30,000 acres and, uh, and, and many others into the thousands of acres. So, yeah, I think some do, but most don't. They're just, you know, it's about causing the, you know, causing the fires, getting the big fire is not necessarily their motivation. Yeah, what, what, um, now you had, you've had such a 
wonderful career here, and I know you're still working uh, privately. Uh, what what was one of your most challenging uh, arson cases or interesting ones? Well, they're all <laughs> they're all interesting and they're all challenging. Um, I think we've been doing this long enough that we know that if we bring enough resources to bear, enough effort, uh, if we spend enough money, that we will eventually catch the person if they keep lighting fires. It's just inevitable. Um, I can only think of one case that I did not catch the perpetrator. I know who it was. I'm quite convinced. I'm right. But he quit setting fires before we could quite, you know, just not quite close the loop on him. And I monitored monitored him so over the last 15 or 20 years, and he has not set fires since. I'm pretty sure of that. But anyway, they're all they're all challenging. They're all interesting. But probably one of the most demanding ones was the, a fire called the Heyman Fire. It occurred in Colorado in 2002, I believe. And the fire was at that time. It's since been superseded by at least one or two other fires. Um, it was the largest fire in the history of the state of Colorado at the time. Uh, 64,000 acres, I think it burned, something like that, or 164,000, maybe that's what it was. But anyway, that fire was challenging because it was uh, started by a, for, a Forest Service a firefighter, a female firefighter named uh, Terry Lynn Barton. And <laughs> she... I accidentally I stepped on that, didn't I? Go ahead. What's that? No, uh, say again. No, is that the that one I accidentally uh, mentioned earlier? Oh, yes, that's the one, the love letter fire, yes. It, yeah, that's it. Go ahead. Quite a, notorious, quite a notorious fire, but the, the interesting aspect of that was uh, almost a, literally, a year to the day of a class that I'd helped put on back in, in Boise, Idaho, the previous year, there was, a, there was a student in there named Kimberly Jones, and she was almost brand new to the Forest Service. She had come from uh, the Environmental Protection Agency as a special agent, and prior to that she had worked in, uh, of all places, Kansas City, Missouri, as a uh, detective for the police department. And so she, she had some really good law enforcement background. She had terrible fire, pack, fire suppression background. So, you know, the, her only training was what we delivered to her at the FI-210. So, okay, so imagine a year from... You know, that class, and I get a phone call from Kim, and she says, I don't know if you remember me, but I was in your class in Boise, and of course I remember you, Kim, because she was one of the better students, you know, very enthusiastic, very uh, very paying attention and really absorbing what we were delivering. And she says, um, you know what's going on with the Heyman fire? And I said, yeah, I've been watching it on the news. And I said, it's a campfire, right? And she goes, I don't think so. She said, I think it's arson. I said, okay, why? And so she kind of outlined a few things. So I called my boss, and at that point he says, yeah, go see if you can figure this thing out with Kim. And as it turned out, Kim had recovered. Two two much more seasoned fire investigators had looked at that fire scene and at that origin, and they had identified the campfire ring as the, the source of uh, the, or as the ignition source. They hadn't dug any deeper, and Kim, when she got there, she dug into the campfire ring, and she found three matches, all within about half-inch part. And so at that point, it becomes, that's, this is odd, and the camp, there, had been, there, were, there were a whole bunch of other factors that caused Kim to say, this just doesn't feel right. And after I looked at it, I completely agreed with her that this appeared to be a staged arson fire. So if you're familiar with the term crime scene staging, we believe that's what was going on. And ultimately, what our, 
our theory of the case was that was that uh, Miss Barton had asked to go to quote arson school several mm-hmm. weeks prior to the Heyman fire, and she'd been told by her supervisor that there wasn't enough fire load on the on the the, uh, the the ranger district she worked on to justify sending her to that school. And so all of a sudden we get the fire, and I don't think she had any intent whatsoever to cause that much damage. I think she wanted to set a small fire and put it out and then be a hero. But the you know, fire conditions were so extreme, and the wind was blowing so hard, the fire immediately escaped her control and went on to become... You know, the largest fire in Colorado history at the time. When wow. she was ultimately questioned and um, confessed, which the vast majority of serial wildland arsonists do confess, by the way, uh, when she confessed, she tried to say she was going through a divorce with her husband and she'd burned a love letter, an old love letter of his that uh, was in the fire ring because she was so distraught. But we sent all the contents of the campfire ring back to the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms lab back east, and they examined it, and they found not a you know, single scrap of, of burned cellulose in the fire other than you know the grass in the old coals. But that was an interesting case because, of course, it involved the Forest Service employee who at the time was being lauded as a hero in the media mm-hmm. because... You know, she discovered it and tried to put it out, and she was, you know, been, she was being given big props. So when my boss called me and he and he says, "So my boss wants to know, does this guy know what he's doing?" <laughs> I, you know, my boss had to defend me to his boss and say, yeah, it does. <laughs> "But ultimately, right. ultimately, yes, you know, we we were right. She, you know, didn't truly confess. In my opinion, she didn't tell the truth totally, but she did admit to starting the fire." And she did ultimately serve six, six, almost six years in federal prison. Do you ever do follow? Do you ever do follow-ups on on what happens to uh, to them after they get out? I mean, I don't know if you guys do it or uh, imagine somebody's looking at them. Um, but um, I don't know who's going to follow Ho- OJ. But that's all right. Let's right. talk. Yeah, so. the, the, most states, uh, well, I shouldn't say most, I don't know this for a fact, but uh, a number of states do have, a just like they have a sex offender registry, they do have an arsonist registry, so there is some some uh, uh, effort to monitor and see where they go. Mm-hmm. And are they you know, going to get implicated again? In Oregon, there was a guy that... Uh, he he just couldn't help himself. He was the classic recidivist serial arsonist. Uh, every time he would light a fire, you know, would get caught lighting fires, he'd go to prison, he'd come out after two, three, four years, whatever it was, and he, within just a few weeks, would be back at it again. And this the third time I think he went away. I think he may even still be in prison because of it's a, in Oregon we call it a Measure 11 crime. It's kind of a three strikes you're out sort of mm-hmm. thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you uh, about that specifically because this is something you know you hear all these these statistics and and watch the news. Um, there's quite a danger for fatalities in this. Oh uh, yeah, with any fire, I mean once you once you you know release the fire genie out of the bottle, you lost all control of it at that point. Ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, so. You know where it's going to go from there. Like for instance, on the Heyman fire, there were six 
fatalities associated with that fire, five Oregon firefighters that worked for a company who I know the owner of, actually, um, here, here out of Grants Pass, um, were killed in a traffic accident uh, responding to that fire, or, well, at least to a staging area. That you know, From there, they could have gone on to several other fires, but at that point, everybody was pretty sure they were going to go to the Heyman fire. So that those five fatalities were the direct, in my opinion, the direct result of Terry Barton's um, a criminal act. There was also a, a sixth fatality that was due to an asthma attack related to smoke inhalation from that mm-hmm. fire, but unfortunately uh, the woman was cremated and her remains were cremated without an autopsy. So you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office could, you know, felt that there was not enough evidence to you know, justify charging her with, with homicide. But in my opinion, she was clearly responsible for those six deaths. Yes, and I'm glad that you said that because that's something that I I think people don't realize about the crime of arson, that it 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 is very dangerous to firefighters traveling to and from and the general public. Well, that, that uh, too. also. And, and on the line, I mean, all you have to do is look at the Raymond Lee Euler case down in San Bernardino who he is currently sitting on death row now, the first person ever to be given the death penalty in, in the uh, serial arson case. He, he lit the notorious Esperanza fire, which was one of a number of fires he lit over a two-year period, Esperanza being the one that culminated in the deaths of five Forest Service firefighters when uh, they were over entrapped and overrun uh, on that fire. Well, they used to call them smoke jumpers. Um, the firefighters that jumped in there. Uh, now they're calling hot shots now. Um, oh no, smoke! No, they're still smoke jumpers. Hot shots have been around since, gosh, at least the, probably the 30s or, or at least 40 years from now. A type, they're a Type One crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have they, they have incredibly rigorous training standards and physical fitness standards. And I was on a hot shot crew briefly, and it's tough work. <laughs> I mean, you have to admire anybody that's uh, on a hot shot crew. They they are typically the uh, green berets of firefighting, if you will, at a ground level. They don't parachute in; they drive and then walk into to the roughest parts of the fire. In fact, I'm going to put a plug in for a movie um, that's coming out here this month. I think next week. Uh, is it what is it called? Uh, heck, only the uh, only, only the yeah. brave. But yeah, anyway, I was going to ask you about that. What's the name of it? I think it's only the brave. I want to say it's only. I think it's only the brave. But it's it's uh, yeah. it's got some you know some pretty good actors in it. And it from what I've seen of the the trailers, it's got some incredibly realistic wildland fire footage. It's the story of the uh, Yarnell fire and the uh, Granite Mountain Hotshot crew that was the the entire crew minus one guy was wiped out on that fire. So nineteen deaths. Okay, and that was yes. not an arson fire. That was a, a a lightning strike that caused that fire. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. There's different types of, of things that cause uh, wildland fires, and some of them can be a lightning. That happens, uh, in, particularly in, in uh, mountainous areas, I think. And then uh, you also can have electrical malfunctions, you know, a, a line falling. You can you can have people smoking cigarettes and throwing them out the window, although that's a little bit more... Um, well, anyway, uh, and and moisture has a lot to do with it, uh, and and I worked fires where there were um, uh, bales of of different kind of of uh, 
materials uh, where, in fact, you helped me out uh, on one, and you don't even know you did it. But uh, if you remember when they had the the handbook, the NWCG handbook, uh, and um, uh, you were you were nice enough when I was president of the international to to uh, help me uh, get you some funding for for that. If you no, remember, no, no, you were nice enough to give us funding to finish the writing on that. That's so yeah. we still we still very much appreciate that you did that. No, 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 but what I'm saying to you is that that you know that handbook came in very hap- uh, very. <laughs> it's been very handy for me, and now I happen to new one. Oh my gosh, uh, that's that's gigantic. Anyway, the the bottom line is that uh, that's still handy, and so people don't realize that there's a certain orientation. That has to be a certain moisture content, a certain a topography, a certain um, there's all kinds of different things that go into uh, wildland fires. Not only the the fuel, but uh, the factors for the ignition of those fuels. And um, and anyway, so it's a real specialty. And I applaud you for for having that because you've taught a lot of us fire investigators so much. Um, what do you think? What do you think is? Uh, what do you think the most challenging thing is uh, for you in in fire investigations? I mean, is it is it the documentation? Is it the evidence collection? What is it that you think is is really uh, something that you have to deal with every time? Well, hmm, that's a good question, and let me let me just ponder that for a second. All right, sure. Um, most of my work now is is uh, after the fact consultation. Although I am doing some active investigation, uh, and I'll give you an example. You talked about electrical cause. A uh, more recent case I was involved with that started in a, in 2012 back in Wyoming, and an associate and I named a guy named Alan Carlson, who I think actually is a better fire investigator than I am. He's very good. But the two of us together worked that and. Uh, that was that was a very complex case because the, the, the cro- a cross arm on an electrical utility line had failed and it dropped the line and it started three separate fires. It, it, mm-hmm. There were three separate origins, a half mile distance in between them, and to work that that scene was. <laughs> it took us. We, we were out there for eight days, like twelve, fourteen hour days. Wow. Before we yeah. finally figured it out, and while some of the terrain was flat, a lot of it was not flat, so it involved quite a bit of up and down hiking on uh, some pretty pretty rugged terrain. So that was that was a tough and challenging case. But what I see primarily in my business now is I'm asked to review other people's work, mm-hmm. where I see that they get it right. That the majority of the time, they're not showing their work. They are, this is probably the biggest problem I see with wildfire investigations is insufficient documentation. And there, there really is no excuse today. It, you know, I remember when I first started working, you got a roll of film at the beginning of the month, and you, were, you know, a roll of 36, and you were told to make it last. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and t- t- today, that, you know, digital film, there's no reason not to take you know, hundreds, if, if not more, pictures to show what you need. And I am of the school that you take as many pictures as possible because you never know what you don't see today that, that you are going to see when you take you know, a closer look at your photographs. Like, for instance, on that fire back in Wyoming, between Carlson and I, we took over 2,000 photographs. 
I believe that because the only ones that the attorneys ever ask you about is the one you don't have. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, so, that's right. And um, I, I think it's the documentation, the insufficient documentation. I think we also see uh, occasionally a, a uh, I don't want to say a rush to judgment, but a going to the obvious and not really you know, setting it up as a hypothesis and really testing it. And in my opinion, and I'll hark back to the you know, famous words of Dr. Karl Popper, you don't ever prove a scientific theory. The best you can do is falsify it. And mm-hmm. if it survives falsification, then it stands as a valid theory until somebody comes along with more data and falsifies it or strengthens it. But you don't right. ever prove Proof is proof is a legal concept. That's what we do with our cases. We prove them in court, but not as not as scientists, we don't. Yeah, then the hardest person to to convince us to the cause of the fire is the fire investigator. That's the way it should be, anyway. Uh, okay, now guess what? How do people get in touch with you? We only got two minutes left here. Okay. How do people get in touch with you, Paul? All right, the best, the, probably the best way is by email, and that would be my name, Paul Steensland. P-A-U-L-S-T-E-E-N-S-L-A-N-D, all one word, at gmail.com. And second best would be my mobile phone, and that is area code 530-249-0873. Okay, so why don't we go over that again? Just give me the, the, the cell phone number. The cell phone number is 530-249-0873. And I have a personal habit. I don't answer phone calls I don't recognize, so it's usually best to either email me or text me. Good idea. Okay, well, thank you for being with us today. Uh, you've, you've been very informative, uh, and we really appreciate you, Paul. You're a good man and, and uh, a great investigator. Well, um, Mike, I'm saying back at you, and thank you as well, Donna. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank, well, thank you so you. much. Okay, thank you. And next week, we're going to have courts. A judge and attorney discuss a fire homicide a case and civil cases. So everybody likes uh, J. Philip Nichols uh, Jr. is a uh, a judge and he's a real judge and he'll be on. And Tom Nay is a uh, is an attorney, but he's also been a fire investigator. He's back to being a fire investigator. I guess he didn't like the law that much. I don't know. Anyway, the bottom line is, please join us next week. And when you come back, come back to speaking of fire. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.